0: Record. All right. So let me introduce tonight's speaker. Nina Sankovich is a best selling author, avid historian, and a voracious reader. She's the author of four books of nonfiction and has written for the New York Times, the LA Times, Vogue, the Huffington Post, and other media. Sankovich attended Tufts University and Harvard Law School worked as an environmental lawyer for the National Resources Defense Council and as president and executive director of Save the Sound in Connecticut, where she lives with her family. I am now going to turn it over to you, Nina.
1: Oh, thank you, Sarah. And thank you, Allie, for moderating the questions later. I'm so pleased to be here this evening virtually with all of you. Thank you to the Francis Tavern Museum for inviting me. I'm very um, happy to be talking about American rebels. Uh, my book that came out last year, but it, um, it just con- it continues for me to be very relevant to the times that we're living in. And I hope as I give my talk, you'll see how much relevance there is to what was going on then for the American rebels and, and some of the, the, the issues that we're facing now. So my book, American Rebels, begins in the old village of Braintree in the colony of Massachusetts. And let me get my slideshow going because we'll see if there's a, a nice, um, <laughs> nice little drawing of the third parish church and the graveyard. Now, my book actually begins with a funeral that took place in that church. Um, this is the death of a very good man that was being um, orated that day in, in the North Parish Church. Spring of 1744, and Reverend John Hancock, who was only 41 years old, has died, leaving behind his wife, Mary, and three children, a girl named Mary and two boys, Ebenezer and John. And yes, that John. John Hancock was a big signature. Attending the funeral of John Hancock with the big signature's father, Reverend Hancock, was a young John Adams, who was there not only because his father was the deacon of the North Parish Church, but also because John Hancock was his friend. John Adams' future in-laws were also at the funeral, although of course he didn't know that, he was just a young boy, but um, the Reverend William Smith and his wife, Elizabeth Quincy Smith, um, had come from Weymouth to attend the funeral because they were friends with Reverend John Hancock. Now, interestingly, Abigail Smith who would become Abigail Adams was also at the funeral but she was only there in utero because she was not yet born. Her mother would give birth to Abigail that fall in the fall of 1744. Also present at the funeral were members of the Quincy family, a prominent family of the village um, and Abigail Adams was related to that family through her maternal line. They were a well-to-do family, very well thought of in the village. Little baby Josiah Quincy had most likely been left at home. He was just a couple months old. And I have a lot more to tell you about him, but that will come later. Now, only in retrospect, can we see that the death of Reverend John Hancock set in motion events that would bring together a group of young men and women and set them on the path to rebellion. I discovered Reverend Hancock and his village and this progeny of heroes, and you'll see that they were heroes, while searching through the collections of the Massachusetts Historical Society. I had gone to the society um, to try to find the answer to a question that had long interested me. And that question was how did the American colonists have the courage to rise up against a power like England and claim its independence, how could they have had the guts to do that? And I also wondered how that choice to rebel cut across class lines. And I wondered how it cut across gender lines. Who remained loyal? Who chose to rebel? How did that cut across class, gender? Um, I began searching for a community that could give me a microcosm of, 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 of colonists who, who either chose to rebel against England or chose to stay loyal. And I wanted a community of, you know of active men and women, different classes and backgrounds. And I wanted to find a group that did actually work together towards independence. Now through a twist of luck, I came upon a book written by a quirky minister historian named Daniel Monroe Wilson. And there you see him, and there you see his book. He wrote a book in which he described Braintree, Massachusetts as the place where independence began. Independence began, he said. And then he wrote, few towns can boast of history more brightly colored, not only with deeds of patriots, But with the surprises of romance, not only with the sturdy enterprises of plain liberty loving farmers, but also with a debonair discourse of the colonial gentility. Independence, patriots, romance, liberty loving farmers, and gentility. I had found my village to study. Here we have another slide of that village Braintree. So who are these young men and women, these patriots, gentility, romantics, farmers? Who are they? Well, we can start with John Hancock, who, of course, you know John Hancock. Did you know that he was not only the son of a preacher, but he was also the grandson of one? And he most likely would have become a minister himself. But for the intervention of his uncle, and perhaps even more importantly, his aunt, who adopted him after the death of his father and gave him a really good education and financial resources and encouraged him to become the leader that he became, that he became. And as my book details, um, John Hancock risked his life again and again for the rights of his fellow colonists um, in the years leading up to and during the American Revolution. And he did it all despite the often searing pain he suffered um, as someone who had gout for most of his life. And of course, you know, John Adams, um, and you're, I'm sure very familiar with his ambitions to greatness, not only for his colony, but also for himself. And of course, you know, Abigail, here she is. Um, Abigail actually spent a good part of her childhood in Braintree. She stayed with her grandmother Quincy uh, because her grandmother really appreciated the kind of person that from a very young age Abigail was, which was a feisty, independent, determined person. And in fact, um, grandmother Quincy uh, wrote in a letter that that Abigail was was a fine young girl because wild colts make the best horses. Another important figure from Braintree is Dolly Quincy, uh, born Dorothy Quincy, but known as Dolly. And Dolly would become the wife of John Hancock, but only after years of courtship. She had known both wealth and deprivation in her life, and she was determined to forge her own path, independent for herself, but also always dutiful to her community. And we see that theme again and again, this duty to community. Now, unless you have already read my book, American Rebels, it's likely that you're not familiar with Josiah Quincy Jr., the the baby uh, at the time of the funeral of Reverend Hancock. And here is a portrait of him. Josiah is really a forgotten hero of the American Revolution. He was also born in Braintree. He's a Braintree born American rebel. And he was a friend, a young friend to Hancock John and Abigail and Dolly. In his lifetime, Josiah Quincy was famous. He was known as the Patriot because he was an incredible political writer. He was also an orator, an eloquent speechmaker. Um, he was a sought after lawyer, and he was also a diplomat who traveled far and wide seeking American unity, prosperity and peace despite his own crippling health issues. So how is it that so many prominent leaders of the American Revolution all came from the small village of Braintree? Daniel Newell Wilson didn't have the answer, Um, but through years of research, I pulled together a pretty good explanation of why, how they all came from this place, why they all had the leadership qualities that they did. And the reasons are fascinating, they're complex, they're inspiring. And until now, I really think they're largely unknown, but I put it all into American Rebels to try to explain how a community can foster those kinds of leaders. I divide my book into three time periods. So the first one I call Tinder. In the years 1744 to 1764, And in that time, I I, I cover the youth of the the men and women of Braintree, um, and I cover the Harvard years of of Hancock and Adams and the Quincy boys, and also the years after college for both the men and women of Braintree, as they started out on their careers, as they dallied in romances, um, and as life in the colonies got more complicated with Britain suddenly paying attention to what was going on there. And the second part of my book is called, let me get that. Here we go Spark, 1765 to 1773, which covers um, those years of early conflict between England and the colonies. So we're uh, the Sugar Act, the Stamp Act, the arrival of troops to patrol Boston, the Boston Massacre. And I also write about the personal milestones of the rebels during that time, with marriages and children, career gains, career losses, and also the strengthening of ties between them. And then I end that section with the Boston Tea Party and move on to the final part, part three, Flame. Speaks for itself, really. Um, I detail how the rebels each took on the fight for independence in their own way, as a personal duty and and they did what they could during events that included um, the imposition of a blockade on, on Boston, the Battle of Lexington and Concord, the Siege of Boston, Bunker Hill, meetings of the Continental Congress, and the Declaration of Independence in July of 1776. Now, throughout the three parts of the book, I explore how each of the American rebels that I write about responded to the crises of their times in their own particular way. How they arrived at the choice of rebellion along their own singular path. Discovering their personal experiences, what drove them to make the choices they made was really the best part of my research, the part that I just enjoyed so much um, delving into journals and letters and and ledgers and and all kinds of documents and all sorts of archives. I wanted to know the details of the daily lives of these men and women, um, how they coped at home and at work with the crises that they had to undergo. I wanted to know what they felt, what they ate, what they saw, what they looked like, what they smelled and what they smelled like. I mean, I wanted everything, their health issues, and there were many, they all suffered from health issues. And I wanted to know about their spiritual and mental crises and how they dealt with that, how they got through these crises, what they hoped for, what they lost, what they mourned and how they rejoiced. By examining these personal experiences of the Hancock Adams and Quincy families and the members of these families, we can understand just how hard it was to make the decision to break with England. And then the tremendous sacrifices required to carry that decision through to fruition. Now, as I said earlier, Josiah Quincy Jr. is a forgotten hero of the revolution and a truly inspiring one. He, um, as a child, he was sickly, often bedridden. And while other children were out and about, playing in the fields and woods surrounding the village, Josiah was most often at home, in bed, reading. He loved to read. And he had a great memory for everything he read. Um, in part because he took notes of everything that interested him. Now, at the age of 14, Josiah started college at Harvard. here we have time for a new slide, finally. Here's old Harvard. Um, His older brothers had gone before him, Sam and Ned, along with John Hancock and John Adams. But in many ways, Josiah's experience at Harvard would be very different from that of his brothers and of John Hancock. He was never a big partier, unlike his brother Sam, who took the crown for partying with John Hancock coming in a close second. And in fact, at that time at Harvard, it was a pretty heavy partying place. According to an early historian of the college, the mid 18th century was a time when two-fisted tippling was at its peak at Harvard. At no other period in the history of that Cambridge institution has so much liquor been consumed per capita. And I have proof of this. <laughs> this is a fraction of the collection of tankards from Harvard's own collection. And they did not drink water from, the, from these vessels. They drank all kinds of beer, cider, alcohol, cider, and, and, uh, and wonderful little cocktails they made themselves. But Josiah did not. Josiah did not partake. He was not interested in drinking or playing cards or cavorting around going out. He just wanted to read. He, in the copious notes that he took in journals that he kept throughout, throughout college, we can see evidence of how much he read and also of how he recorded what he read. He copied out favorite lines and he offered his own commentary on just everything that he read and what he could learn from what he read. And here he's categorizing things. In his senior year, when uh, that was the year when students were permitted to take books out of the Harvard library, take them back to their rooms. Josiah checked out a wide variety of books. We actually have that register uh, in essays, poems, histories. Um, He also took out medical books, which is interesting, including this one by the English doctor John Pesci titled General Treaties of the Causes and Signs of all diseases afflicting human bodies together with the shortest, plainest and safest way of curing them by method, medicine and diet to which is added for the benefit of young practitioners, several choices, forms of medicines used by the London physicians. So that's quite a book. Um, And he took notes on that book and he was interested in all sorts of things. But his favorite, kind of books to read and the ones he took out again and again from the library, and he took copious notes from these books, were books that explored law, the history of law, the application of law, the purpose of law. Here we have uh, Bacon's book on the common laws of England. There was just no question that Josiah Quincy was going to become a lawyer. And so after college, he did that. He began an apprenticeship, which is what you had to do to become a lawyer. Then you started an apprenticeship with an older lawyer who taught you about the law. And you took part in cases and you recorded them and you learned the law that way. He worked with uh, an, a man by the name of Oxenbridge Thatcher, who was a renowned lawyer in Boston and an avowed wig. And it's just a great, uh, a great internship for him to have. As an apprentice lawyer, Josiah kept a new kind of journal. He started a new kind of journal, one that he called his Law Commonplace Book. Here is a copy of his his first book. And on the, the front of his book, he copied a quote from David Hume, from law arises security, from security, curiosity, and from curiosity, knowledge. And this shows Josiah just felt law was the foundation of everything because law provided security, stability, and allowed citizens to go out and do, to learn things, to work, to prosper, because they had the foundation of law. They had the security. Um, In his Law Commonplace book, Josiah took copious notes on legal theories and treatises. He recorded page after page of legal maxims. He dissected court cases. And those law journals would prove um, to really serve him well in the years that followed as he became a practicing lawyer. But it didn't, those journals didn't only help him in the practice of law. The journals, all the knowledge that he imbibed, all the quotes that he that he that he kept for himself, helped him in the role that he took on in the mid-1760s um, of political commentator. Of a pamphleteer and agitator in the cause of the colonists. Now Josiah took his first steps as a political activist following Parliament's passage of the Stamp Act in 1765. He was desperate, uh, England was desperate to raise money after fighting the Seven Years War and so Parliament imposed new taxes on the colonies in the form of a stamp. Stamp had to be put on just any kind of piece of paper, wedding license, cards, legal papers. Now Josiah could understand why Parliament needed to raise money. They had emptied the Royal coffers fighting the Seven Years' War and England was broke. But the Stamp Act had been enacted without the protections of representation and process guaranteed by British law. The citizens of the colonies were being taxed without having their voice heard in Parliament. Now it was this failure to follow the law that Josiah could not abide. Parliament had trampled on the rights of the colonists and such trampling could not stand. To protest the act, Josiah and his fellow patriots urged a colony-wide boycott of all British goods and of any activities requiring stamps. So women vowed to forego wedding licenses. Um, Everyone swore off imported tea, linens, books, on and on. The sacrifices made were hard, but the economic toll on merchants and suppliers overseas in England was even worse. And they applied pressure to Parliament and Parliament in the end backed down and they repealed the Stamp Act in 1766. But the battle for the rights of colonists was just beginning, because in 1767, news of a new of a new series of acts, the Townshend Acts, arrived in the colonies. Now duties were going to be imposed on a large number of goods coming into the colonies. Smuggling was going to be; uh, uh, they were going to crack down on smuggling. Violations of, of the act or any kind of smuggling could arrest would result in, in fines, arrest, trial without a jury, imprisonment, and Perhaps worst of all in Josiah's view was that British troops were going to be sent, more and more British troops were going to be sent to Boston to ensure compliance with the new acts. And here, uh, oh, there's the Stamp Act, got that slide. But here is uh, an engraving that Paul Revere made of the troops arriving um, to enforce Parliament's acts in the colonies. Josiah Quincy took to his favorite weapon, his pen, and he wrote passionately against the Acts. His writing spread like wildfire through the merchant classes and the working classes, and were also read by those crown officials who had to decide whether to stand with their king or with their fellow colonists. Everyone had to make that decision. Josiah used dramatic imagery in his writing, and I'm going to give you a small example so you can get an idea of how he wrote. So he's writing about the imposition of tax of duties on, on colonial goods. And this is how he writes about it. A rank adulterer riots in thy incestuous bed. A brutal ravisher deflowers thy only daughter. A barbarous villain Now lifts the murderous hand and stabs thy tender infant to the heart. He then urges my my much respected countrymen to reject the threats and vaunting of your sworn foes and defend the liberty of the colony against all usurpers. Pretty passionate stuff. A recurring theme throughout Josiah Quincy's political writings and in his private journals and his letters and any recorded conversations, for example, that John Adams had with him is adherence to the rule of law. Now, a test of his convictions about the importance of the rule of law came in 1770 when Josiah was asked by the British Army Captain Thomas Preston to defend Preston and his men against multiple charges of murder. I am sure you're all familiar with what the colonists called the Boston Massacre, and we call that too, and the British called an incident on King Street. So on the evening of March 5th, 1770, what began as a taunting of a guard by a child turned into the gathering of a mob and ended with British soldiers blindly shooting into a crowd of civilian men, women, and children. Three colonists were killed that night, another died the next morning, and another died two weeks later. Captain Preston and seven men under his command were charged with murder in the deaths of those colonists. Josiah was assisted by John Adams in representing the accused British soldiers and their captain. But Captain Preston had asked for Josiah first because he was known as the best lawyer in Boston. So You're probably wondering, well, why did Quincy and Adams agree to represent these British troops accused of murdering their fellow American colonists? They did it to prove that the colonists of Massachusetts were law abiding in all circumstances, that they respected the law, they respected the right to counsel and trial and representation as guaranteed under British law. And they wanted to show that the colonists were deserving of having their rights restored to them, again, under British law. My book goes into great detail about the Boston Massacre trials. It's no, I'm not giving anything away to say that Captain Preston and five of his soldiers were found not guilty. Two were convicted of manslaughter and condemned to be branded on the hand. Josiah and John Adams were satisfied that they had done their job well. Now the success of Josiah's legal and political careers came at a cost the hours spent composing new editorials and pamphlets, while also working as a lawyer, took its toll on his health. He received a diagnosis of consumption, which we now call tuberculosis, and which was basically a death sentence at that time. You knew if you got a diagnosis of consumption, you had a shortened life expectancy. Um, But Josiah? sought out the advice of a young doctor named um, Warren, Dr. James Warren. He was a young man, um, Dr. Joseph Warren. Oh, I'm mixing up with James Warren. Dr. Joseph Warren, he was a young man, but already a well-respected doctor and a fellow Whig. When Dr. Warren suggested in the winter of 1773 that a trip south to recuperate in warmer climes might help with his breathing and his chest and might make him feel better and might even prolong his life, Josiah agreed to go but he wasn't going south for rest and relaxation. Instead, he planned on using the trip to begin a one man campaign to bring the northern and southern colonies together in opposing British policies. Now he understood that the southern concerns were distinct from those of northerners um, across politics, economies you know, religion, everything was different, but he was sure that he could bring north and south together. As he wrote in a letter to a friend. Let us forgive each other's follies and unite while we may to think justly is not sufficient, but we must think alike before we shall form a union and with that union truly formed, we are invincible. Let me just check my time. So Josiah went south um, to form a union and he he went by sea to Charleston and then he planned to travel back by horse up through all the colonies, visiting all the different colonies along the way. So, there's Dr. Joseph Warren. And here are the colonies. Sorry, I'm not keeping up with my slides. I'm too excited about my conversation. And here is old Charleston. Now the rich and powerful men of Charleston quickly warmed to Josiah. They just loved him. I mean, he appeared to be one of them. He was rich. He was savvy. He was cultured. He was interested in good food and good wine. And Josiah was good at making conversation with people and good at making people feel comfortable. However, what Josiah wrote in his journal showed that he he somewhat disapproved of the Southern way of life. He wrote about how um, men in the South were just obsessed with just having fun, having a good time. Cards, dice, and the bottle. Horses engross prodigious portions of time and attention. He even said, even the day of Sabbath is a day of visiting and mirth of license and frolic. He was appalled. He was a good New England Congregationalist, and he was appalled by frolic and mirth on a Sunday. But he did meet up with a number of very active and dedicated patriots, um, men he described as hot and zealous in the cause of America. And ultimately, as Josiah traveled back north, working his way through the Southern colonies and then through the mid-Atlantic, he formed strong relationships with a number of men who would later stand with New England at the meetings of the Continental Congress, which began in the fall of 1774. And those same strong connections between North and South would serve to to, to, to tighten bonds that would lead ultimately to the signing of the Declaration of Independence in 1776. Now, one aspect of Southern life and culture, which Josiah detested was slavery. He was horrified by its prevalence in the South, and he was disgusted by its acceptance by so many leaders of the Southern colonies. He saw the treatment of slaves and the institution of slavery as indications of hypocrisy. He wrote in his journal, there is much among this people of what the world would call hospitality and politeness. But it may be questioned what proportion there is of true humanity, Christian charity, and love. Josiah feared that the eradication of slavery would be difficult with great opposition from the South. He predicted, and again, this is from his journal, he predicted resentment, wrath, and rage And he wrote, slavery may truly be said to be the peculiar curse of this land. And of course he was right. And we are still dealing with the repercussions. Josiah Quincy returned home to Boston in May of 1773 to discover that a new act had recently been passed by parliament. The act called the Tea Act gave the East India Company an exclusive right to supply tea to the colonies and set duties that had to be paid on that tea. But but they did so low, the price of tea that would be sold by the East India Company would be so low that everyone parliament reasoned would start drinking the East India tea because the price would be right and the company would be saved And that was their plan. It was a monopoly, plain and simple, designed to to save this company, the East India Tea Company. But the colonists saw it as just one further example of oppression by Britain. And Josiah was appalled by the Tea Act. He wrote many fiery critiques of the act. But on the night of December 16th, 1773, it was his oratory skill on prominent display. His spoken words that would propel the men and women of Boston onto the path of rebellion. Almost 7,000 people gathered that night in the Old South Meeting House. They'd spent the day debating what to do with the 3 tea T-ships that had already arrived in Boston lay at anchor in the harbor. They'd come from England. They had tea on board. Um, the colonists would not let the cargo be unloaded off the ships and Crown officials refused to let the ships leave the harbor until the cargoes were loaded. It was an impasse. As the day turned to evening, Josiah rose from his seat in the balcony to speak. He began to list in thorough detail all of the oppressions endured by the colonists from the 1760s up to the Tea Act. Harrison Gray, who was a wealthy merchant and a loyalist, interrupted Josiah and warned him against speaking treason. Josiah didn't flinch. Instead, he said, if the old gentleman on the floor intends by his warning to utter only a friendly voice in the spirit of paternal advice, I thank him but if his object be to terrify and intimidate, I despise him. Josiah then noticed a group of men had entered the hall all dressed as Mohawk Indians. Now, I just want to explain for a moment the symbolism of the Mohawk for the colonists and why they dressed the way they did for the Tea Party and other rebellious actions that they undertook. And for the colonists, they viewed the Mohawks as as very strong, very fierce, very brave, largely based on how they had fought during the Seven Years' War. So to dress as a Mohawk was to demonstrate bravery, fearlessness, and ruthlessness. Once Josiah saw the costumed men enter the Old South, he knew the time had come to launch the plan that he and his fellow patriots had come up with to fight the Tea Act. The plan was simple. The tea held in the cargoes of the ships, now at anchor, was, all that tea was to be launched bale by bale into Boston Harbor. There would be no unloading of cargo for sale and no payment of duties and no capitulation to parliament. Josiah roused the crowd with his words, and said, I see the clouds which now rise thick and fast upon our horizon. The thunders roll and the lightning's play. To that God who rides on the whirlwind and directs the storm, I commit my country. All in all, it took about 60 men, little more than three hours, to break open 342 chests. And dump over 92,000 pounds of tea into the sea. Well, by early May of the next year, May 1774, the colonists heard what Parliament's response to their dumping of tea was. A new act, a new act closing the Port of Boston to all traffic until a full reparation had been made to the East India Company for the destroyed tea. More troops were already on their way to ensure enforcement of the blockade. With no fuel or food allowed in, the people of Boston were to be starved and frozen and bullied into submission. Within, just days of receiving news of the Boston Port Act and reading all of its uh, conditions, Josiah Quincy published an 82-page critique of it. In it, he reminded his fellow colonists that nothing glorious is accomplished, nothing great is attained, nothing valuable is secured without devotion of heart to service, Dedicate yourselves at this day to the service of your country and henceforth live a life of liberty and glory. Ben Franklin in London received a copy of Josiah's pamphlet, which he circulated widely. Josiah decided it was time that he himself go to London, another diplomatic mission and a last ditch effort to convince the king that the colonists' complaints were legitimate, that all they wanted was their rights under British law. But unlike the successes Josiah experienced during his Southern journey to the Southern colonies, in England, Josiah found little support in Parliament or or among people that he met for the American position. The King refused to entertain his proposals of reconciliation And Josiah began to wonder if reconciliation with England was possible or even desirable. The vast space between American England, not only politically, but also physically and atmospherically just made him doubt whether the American colonies were still British at all. Disillusioned with the king and embittered by his meetings with members of parliament, Josiah grew certain that war was both necessary and inevitable, and that it would be terrible. He wrote in a letter to his wife, our countrymen must seal their cause with their blood. Despite having again fallen seriously ill with consumption, in early March of 1775, Josiah began the ocean journey back to America. Why was he so determined to return? He was ill, he should have stayed in England and gotten better. Why was it so urgent that he returned? Because he had been given a secret message, information gathered by the few English allies he had met. It was a message that could help the rebels in their fight against England. It could only be delivered in person spoken by you know spoken word not written down because the information was too dangerous and too important. As Josiah wrote in his journal, they say my going now will be a great advantage to the American cause. So he got in a ship, had a terrible journey. Josiah's ship finally came within view of the American coast on April 26, 1775. Seven days earlier, the Battle of Lexington and Concord had been fought, but Josiah knew nothing about it. He had no idea that the colonists had held their own against the British and that he had been right. The path to war was now inevitable. Did he make it to land to deliver his secret message? Did he fulfill his final mission before dying from the illness that had dogged him his whole life? you will have to read my book, American Rebels, to find out. There is one last quotation from Josiah Quincy Jr. that I would like to share with you from a letter he wrote to encourage a friend. And I'll end with that quotation. May you have the fortitude to suffer, courage to encounter, and activity and perseverance to press forward. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Nina. That was really interesting. Um, I had never really heard of Josiah Quincy before, so I feel like I learned a lot just from that, and I'm interested in reading the book to find out more. Uh, I'm now going to turn it over to Allie, who is going to be looking at your questions. Remember, you can submit them to the little box, labeled Q&A
2: at the bottom. Great, Nina, that was so interesting. And going off of what Sarah said, my first question is, why do you think Josiah has been so overlooked in history?
1: Well, because he did die young, um, and he um, was not one of the people who assumed a role in the United States after the revolution, the way John Adams did, or John Hancock did, um, George Washington. So... Um, in a way, it's similar to Dr. Warren, who many people also have not heard of, he's another really important and interesting political leader in the years leading up to the revolution who died during the American Revolution and a lot of people unfortunately haven't heard of him. Now the wife of Josiah Quincy wanted very much for her husband's legacy to live on and she, she spent her life really working to, to preserve his papers. His son, because he did have he did have children um, before he died, and his son actually ended up be, becoming very famous and the mayor of Boston, he was president of Harvard, and he also did what he did could to carry on his father's legacy. But yes, in modern times, we just don't know about him. So hopefully, my book will will change that.
2: Yeah, let's hope so because he's an amazing figure. Um, we actually did have a lecture about Dr. Joseph Warren. Um, oh gosh, 2019, maybe. Um, I remember correct, if I remember correctly. Um, Another overlooked uh,
1: hero. Fascinating
2: fascinating man too. Yeah. Yeah, that was a really interesting lecture. Um, So my next question is, Josiah was really dedicated to the law, but encouraged the destruction of the tea. Um, Was it that Uh, was it finally reaching the level of too many injustices from Parliament that made him support something that wasn't law-abiding at all?
1: Yeah, I think that was something that really he did struggle with because leading up to that time there had been other instances where he was asked to participate in acts of civil disobedience which he did not do because he really wanted to stay um, within the law. I think he had reached a point that he felt that the tea that was being imposed on the colonies was such that, that the tea act was such a violation of what he saw as the British constitution, the Magna Carta and all of the common law supporting the British legal system that he reasoned that that itself was illegal. And so to rise up against it was, um, was really the only, way to demonstrate to Parliament that the colonists could not be pushed around. He was willing to take the consequences, but when the Port Act then was passed and he realized that England was now going to basically just try to starve the Bostonians, then he became you know, just even more outraged. And that's what really, when he said, I'm going to go to England, he was convinced that the king didn't really know what was going on, that people were misleading the king and that if he could only get to the king and explain how, how great the colonists were and how loyal they could be, that some kind of reconciliation could be made. Of course, when he got to England and he actually realized how the king Wanted, you know, wanted to punish the colonists even more than parliament did, he, he, he quickly realized, oh no, war is inevitable, it's happening.
2: That's really interesting. Um, next, we have a question from Sarah. Um, it seems like many of the founding fathers and key figures in the revolution were lawyers. Were there any big cases that motivated patriots to rebel from England or any other lawyers that played a big part in the revolution by using
1: their skills as attorneys? Oh, that's that's a really good question. Um, definitely, there were in the South. Um, there was actually a tea party party even earlier than than the one in Boston, the, the Eddington Tea Party, where um, the women of this, uh, I think it was South Carolina, um, blockaded and refused to let tea be landed. Um, and there were definitely Southern lawyers who supported that and who who um, who wrote about that. I mean, it. it I think because the lawyers were so um, were so adept at writing their legal briefs, they made a natural sort of political pamphleteer. Um, I I don't know uh, enough about the Southern um, lawyers. I do know that in the New England area, you know, yes, I mean John Adams, you know, Josiah Quincy, John Hancock, of course, was not a lawyer, but he worked closely with lawyers um, in developing his own sort of campaigns to bring the people of Boston along on the road to independence. So um, I think that would make a fascinating book actually to look at all the different um, legal cases that that supported the colonial moves towards independence. So um, yeah, that would make a great book.
2: Yeah, I would love to read that.
1: Um, so
2: this is sort of on a similar note Um, How literate were the colonists at the time? Because Josiah Quincy and others were really good at writing their pamphlets and things like that.
1: Could the working classes appreciate what was being heralded? Well, that is a great question. I love answering that question. Yes, they were literate. And very early um, foundation was set in New England for educating everyone to read. This was one of sort of the basic... Puritan goals like to have, you know, every village should have a every settlement should have a school and everybody should be taught to read so they could read the Bible, they could read for themselves the Bible. And, um, and in Boston, you know, in the 1700s, yes, people could read the literacy rate was very high among men and women. What is interesting is that many of the women's letters that you read from that time, and, and Abigail is a prime example, she wrote these incredibly um, interesting letters and she made references to all kinds of, um, like to not only biblical references, but references to, to Romans and Greeks. And so she was very well educated, but her spelling was terrible <laughs> So. They're, they definitely learned to read and they read a wide variety of materials, that, but they didn't necessarily learn um, how to spell. <laughs> but they definitely have, were a very literate population.
2: That's really interesting. It kind of explains, I guess, why things took off. Yeah, it's true. The population was able. There's something about reading things that's different than hearing it like word of mouth.
1: Right, right, absolutely.
2: Um, Okay, let's see what's next. Um, Did Adams or Quincy ever receive threats of violence for defending the British soldiers from the Boston Massacre?
1: They did, they did from Bostonians. So I'm sure the question means, did their fellow colonists say, what are you doing? Yes, that did happen. It really um, bothered John Adams quite a lot. Um, It didn't bother Josiah Quincy really because Josiah, would, and which demonstrates the difference between the two men, John Adams was always very concerned with how people perceived him. And it was very important to him that he be perceived as the intelligent, brilliant lawyer, lawyer that he was. Josiah Quincy Jr. had an innate sort of confidence and calmness about him. He really, he knew he had done the right thing and he was comfortable with that. in fact, his father wrote to him and said, what are you doing? How can you be doing this? I hear from people, you know, in our little village of Braintree, they tell me you're doing a terrible thing. And he wrote back to his father and said, well, you have terrible friends for scaring you that way, because I am doing a great thing. I am supporting the law. I am representing justice. I am showing that we are a nation that follows the law. So for him, did not bother him. John Adams was greatly bothered by it. Interesting. Um, Why wasn't
2: Quincy arrested when he got to London? Did they just not know who was in charge
1: back in Boston? Well, um, that is he actually he was watched very carefully when he was in London. Um, And his mail was read. And he was, you know, and I mean, records in England show that they were keeping a very close eye on him. And there was always kind of the worry that he might be arrested. Certainly if John Hancock had gone there, he would have been arrested. If John Adams had gone, he would have been arrested. But for some reason, um, no, Josiah Quint, they were watching him and and if he had in any way written a letter saying we have to rise up against England, he would have certainly been arrested. But because he was such a good lawyer, he'd always been able to, to to put things in a way where they couldn't quite accuse him of treason, I think I think that's what happened. But they definitely kept an eye on him. And when he left, they were not even sure that he had gone. Now in America, there were people worried that as soon as he got to England, he was going to be arrested and and, and you know laid out you know set as an example. But he wasn't. So um, um, my guess is that he he was able to represent himself well enough. to to impress even, even, you know, even Englishmen, they may not buy his arguments, but they did not see him as as treasonous.
2: Interesting. Um, So this is actually a question that I have. Um, While you were researching and writing this book, who, you learned a lot about a lot of different people, who is your favorite character in the cast of this story that you wrote?
1: Josiah, <laughs> Josiah, and his wife—I um, found them both to be incredibly compelling characters—and Abigail. I mean, Abigail Adams, just she, she wrote great letters. She had wonderful commentary and she held everything together in braintree while john adams was off doing very important things but she was the one who held the farm together who helped everyone in the village of braintree people turned to her for help and in fact um josiah quince's wife turned to her for help when when josiah um died and it's very moving when she writes to her husband about about um josiah's wife coming to her door and how abigail had to help this poor woman who had just been dealt such a terrible blow. So Abigail Adams is just uh, a wonderful character and there are such great biographies out there about her. And each one of those biographies is just a pleasure to read. And then the um, Massachusetts Historical Society has all of the correspondence of Abigail Adams on you know digital collection so anybody can go on their site and read what Abigail had to say you if you wanted to know what she had to say about geese you could search the geese you know that word and you find that she had quite a lot to say and so she is just a a great character.
2: Yes we are big fans of Abigail Adams on Stabber Museum floor chair. Um, Was there a loyalist population in Braintree and how big was it? How prominent was it?
1: There was a loyalist population in Tree. And in fact, Josiah Quincy's brother, Sam Quincy, was perceived as a loyalist, although he himself didn't see himself. He certainly was a loyalist. And in fact, he was the lawyer prosecuting Captain Preston and the um, other officers accused of murder after the Boston massacre, because he was the basically the attorney general for the colony. So there was such an irony there that he's one who's who was loyal to the king, yet he was charged with prosecuting these British officers while his brother who was a rebel is is representing the British officers. And for Sam Quincy, it was very mind boggling. And um, he actually went to England um, in 1775 and he claimed it was to try to, to find reconciliation, but he he was completely accused of being a loyalist once he left and he never, never came back to the American colonies. So, and and in Braintree, there were other men like him, but in the village of Braintree, the the Patriots definitely far um, outnumbered the loyalists.
2: Okay, great. And this is going to be my last question. Um, If you could dine with anyone at Francis
1: Tavern, who would you pick? (laughs) from history or dead or alive dead or alive oh my oh wow you have to okay i want to dine with josiah quincy jr i want him to come back and i want to ask him so many questions that's so there yep and abigail of course abigail
2: absolutely thank you (laughs)
0: Great. I think it's a good answer. <laughs> uh, so thank you, Allie, for moderating our Q&A. Thank you, Nina, for the wonderful lecture and the great answer to those questions. And thank you to all of you at home for joining us for another evening lecture at Francis Tavern Museum. If you enjoyed tonight's lecture and would like to stay up to date with our programs, you can join our mailing list by going to francistavernmuseum.org. There you will also find our um, social media accounts, as well as our calendar of upcoming programs. Our next lecture is not so far away. It's coming up on December 2nd, and that will be our last um, evening lecture for the year. The next one won't be until January. Thank you to those of you who have donated to the museum. Your generous support helps us fulfill our mission and share the history of the American Revolutionary Era with the public. If you would like to make a donation, you may also do that on our website, FrancisTavernMuseum.org. So thank you again for joining us and we hope to see you again
2: soon. Thank you very much. Good evening.